questions. Uh, I think just answer these in your head. Okay, two, two questions. Um, where do you live now? Where do you live now? And second question, where would you call home? Where would you call home? Okay, have you got your two answers? Okay, a quick straw poll. Hands up. How many of you um, have the same answer for both questions? Okay, that's um, how many of you had a different answer for the two? Okay, a lot of people over this side, but, but some over here as well. Okay, it's a bit of a silly exercise, but I think where we physically live and where we call home aren't always the same thing, are they? They're not always the same thing. There can often be a bit of a tension between the two. So when I was a student, I, um, first year I lived in halls, um, and then my second year as well, then I had a year abroad, I moved to France and spent some time there. And then I came back and lived in a house, a different place. I had four years as a student, but actually, um, even though I lived in all of those places, none of them actually felt like home. Because home often feels like more than our geography, doesn't it, I think? Um, home is often more to do with where we feel we belong. And if you get something of that tension, uh, then I think you've got the tension which is at the heart of this letter, 1 Peter. And it is also a tension at the heart of a whole Christian life. Um, if we were trying to find a, a, a word that, that we've come up with uh, that might try and bring something of this out, I found one. It's in Welsh. Um, it's going to come up on here. It's called Hiraeth. I don't know if I pronounced that well at all. Hiraeth. Is that right, Laura? Hiraeth. Hiraeth. Okay, <laughs> completely wrong. Hiraeth. Um, of course, they've got a word for this. A deep, inborn sense of yearning for a home, a feeling, a place or person that is beyond this plane of existence. Well, the Welsh have one word for it. Peter calls it this. Have a look down at verse 1. He has a pair of words. Do you see? To God's elect exiles. Elect exiles. As we press into that, uh, both today and and in um, the weeks ahead, we'll see something of uh, the the tension uh, at the heart of this letter. Uh, What do those two things mean? Elect, that is who they are. Uh, It's their allegiance, their identity. Verse 2, we see it means they're chosen by God. You are elect, you are not your own, you belong uh, to God. You've been brought into a covenant relationship by the blood of Jesus and you're set apart by the Spirit. Peter, but Peter says they're more than just elect, they are also exiles. And what's an exile? Someone who is far uh, from home. We, I guess we saw Joseph this morning, didn't we? And an exile isn't so much who you are, but where you are, your kind of physical surroundings. And look at verse 2. These Christians are all over the place, aren't they? Scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. But the thing is, living as an elect exile means that home always feels around the corner. And it can be hard to know how to live like that. We thought about that this morning with with Joseph. Do you assimilate or isolate? Do you 
join in with everything where you are physically, or do you keep yourself apart? Well, exile for these Christians that Peter is writing to, not, they're not isolating themselves, but they're not assimilating with the culture either. What did that mean, being elect exiles? Well, it meant a life of pain. A pain that was making them ask, is this glorious home that we're waiting for as Christians, is it ever going to come? As we go through 1 Peter, and you can have a read through it later on tonight, you'll see these Christians are having a hard time. They're marginalised, they're facing verbal abuse. Have a look at chapter 2, physical abuse as well. And why? Well, because they follow the Lord Jesus. They are elect, they belong to him, but they are exiles. But that phrase is true for all Christians Our exile, it isn't quite the same as theirs. We're not facing the brutality of Rome. But some brothers and sisters around the world do, don't they? And in the last 10, 15 years or so, in this country, Christians in the UK have increasingly felt less at home. No wonder, as our experience as exiles, it can be tempting to ask, well, what's the point in following Jesus? If it's only going to make my life harder, what kind of salvation is it if I spend my life in pain and being ridiculed for what I believe? Maybe we begin to ask the question, will I ever get from exile to glory? And if I will, how on earth is that going to happen? Peter knows that living in exile feels like a fog coming in on a gloomy day. The pain of it clouds your vision of what is ahead. So he begins his letter with hope. He begins his letter showing them their future hope, brushing those clouds away so that their future hope and of their future home might shape their present one. So as we start this series in 1 Peter, we're just going to look at two things that elect exiles must remember as we feel the pressure of being where we are. The first thing is our future glory is certain. Our future glory is certain. Have a look at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. New birth is what they have been given. Now, when you're born, uh, you're kind of born into certain circumstances, aren't you? Um, Rich, poor, um, peaceful, war-torn, messy, straightforward. What does Peter want these elect exiles to remember about the circumstances of their birth? Well, two things. We see the phrase born into a couple of times. Verse three, they're born into, firstly, a living hope. And in verse four, they're born into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. So let's look at the first of those. Peter wants them to know they have a living hope. That's a curious phrase, isn't it? Living hope. You don't tend to hear people talking about a dead hope. Um, But there are times in life where maybe we feel like we're abandoning hope because something is threatening it. What kind of things can kill our hope? Well, 
all sorts of things, arguments, decay, death, financial crashes, merely the passing of, of time and circumstances. Hope can feel drifting away for all sorts of reasons, but Peter says, no, you don't have a dying hope or a dead hope, you have a living hope. Why do they have that? Well, because they have a living saviour. Do you see verse three? They are born into living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The only thing that could destroy our hope as Christian believers, our hope as elect exiles, is if Jesus had not walked out of that tomb on Easter day. If he had stayed dead, well then so would we. But he rose. As elect exiles, their hope and our hope is that we will go from exile to glory. Because Jesus himself has gone that path. Our future glory, Peter says, it is certain. Why? Because you have a living hope in a living saviour. But also, you have been born into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Have a look at verse 4. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Uh, This is the inheritance that they are looking forward to receiving. It is the fullness of their salvation. I don't know, maybe some of you in the room have received some inheritance um, before. Or maybe you've been told uh, that to be left some money. Uh, Maybe a house or some belongings or jewellery. Might be a grandparent uh, or an auntie or or uncle who didn't have children. And so they they want to leave it to you. The thing is though, uh, an earthly inheritance, well money can go up or down in value, can't it? So can a house, so can jewellery. Physical things can rust and break. If we go back to the Old Testament, we see that God's people, when they were rescued out of Egypt, they received a land, the promised land. That was their inheritance. We saw that a few months ago when we did a series in Joshua. But the thing is, when they got into the land, that inheritance didn't last forever. Over years, it was ravaged and taken away. They went into exile in Babylon. It decayed. Their inheritance, it was glorious, but it faded. And even when they came back, it was a shadow of the past. I don't know if you found yourself saying or hearing someone say, these days, things are not built to last. Things are not built to last. It's probably something um, a certain generation say more often than, than others. But often it can feel true. How tempted be to believe that our heavenly inheritance is not built to last. That it might fade away just like any earthly inheritance could. Just like Israel's inheritance. Easy to believe that because we have nothing on earth to compare this heavenly inheritance to. But Peter uses three jaw-dropping words, doesn't he? Did you see them? Imperishable. That means it, it cannot perish, it will never perish. Death and decay cannot touch this inheritance. It will never spoil. It will be unstained by evil. And it's unfading, it will never fade. Time will not affect this inheritance. 
This future inheritance is secure because it is not of this world and it is not affected by the things that affect this world. And did you see, so beautiful in verse 4, it is being kept for us. Maybe you've had um, some leftover food in the fridge at your house before. Uh, You've got home and you've taken it out and you're about to tuck into maybe cheesecake or sticky toffee pudding and then someone comes in and you're told, no, you can't have that. That is... That's your brother's piece, that's, that's daddy's piece, that's mummy's piece. Now, a fridge isn't the safest of places. A, a cheesecake will perish, spoil and fade, but you, you get the point. There is something personal going on, a keeping. Our future glory will never perish, spoil or fade and is being watched over and kept for us eternally. Our future glory is certain. We have a living hope in a living saviour and it is being kept safe for us. But Peter goes one step further than that. Um, I love a murder mystery. Um, I know there's a new Poirot film out. Has anyone seen it? Hands up. Okay, a couple. Um, I I love reading Poirot as a teenager. Um, One of the classic kind of motives in a murder mystery, it's kind of... um, bump someone off because they're an heir to a kind of fortune and you might be kind of next in line, something like that, so so that they don't inherit the money and then the master criminal can kind of get one step closer. And what the heir in the murder mystery needs is is a kind of guardian angel, maybe a Hercule Poirot kind of watching over them so that they're protected, so that they're alive to receive the inheritance. And Peter says that there is a double keeping going on here. Not only is heaven kept for us, but we are kept for it. You see verse 5, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. God himself holds us fast. He shields us so that we will enjoy that eternal inheritance. The image is um, kind of a military one, being surrounded by strong walls and shields and being, being guarded so that we might receive that inheritance at the right time. But the thing is, you don't have to kind of live long to know that it doesn't always feel like we're being shielded, does it? We always feel like we're being securely guarded by the God of the universe. How can we say we are shielded by God's power when we see brothers and sisters groaning in pain, tortured, even killed for owning Christ? How can we say that? What does he say in verse 5? We are shielded through faith. We need to remember what it is that he's keeping us for not keeping us for a long life he's not keeping us for perfect health or even perfect happiness now he is shielding us for a future salvation in his hands a future that paul says neither death nor life nor persecution nor famine can take away he's shielding us through faith when life feels uh, kind of on the edge, when life feels like 
we are constantly in exile and never getting to glory. When the, the fog of exile is all that we can see in our eyes, what does Peter say? He says, your future glory is certain. Be confident in your future salvation. Be confident because we have a living hope and a living saviour. We have an imperishable inheritance that is doubly kept. It is kept for you and we are kept for it by our Heavenly Father. Peter is saying there is so much more to salvation than just what you experience in the present. That we have a confidence as certain as the resurrection. I wonder how much you feel that the kind of tension of being an elect exile at the moment. How confident are you feeling about your future? Not just tomorrow, not just the next week, the next month, but your eternal future. Well, Jesus longs for you to know how certain your future glory is if you trust in him. He longs for you to know that. So look at these words and be confident. And we need this confidence, don't we? Because we're not there yet. Yes, like these Christians that Peter's writing to, we are elect if we trust in him. But like them, we are also exiles. And whilst the future might be beautiful and glorious, the present can often be a place of pain. Knowing that our future glory is certain... Sometimes that doesn't feel quite enough, does it, to keep going? All too easily, the pain of the present clouds in and we can't see through grief and suffering and we feel so discouraged that disbelief floods our hearts. But Peter knows, as well as knowing that our future glory is certain, we also need to know that our present suffering has purpose. Our present suffering has purpose. That's our second point, verses 6 to 9. Have a look at verse 6. Peter is real about what being an exile is like. He is real about suffering. For though for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all trials, Peter knows that the Christian life, this side of glory, is life in a sin-infected world. It's a life where we face all sorts of difficulties. And just looking around the room, knowing our church family, um, the, pe- the way that we suffer are, are so varied, aren't they? physical and mental, painful joints, decaying bodies, depression, exhaustion, allergies, grief because of our parents or or a spouse or or even a child having died. Our trials can be spiritual, sadness and the frustrations that uh, we fail to follow Christ faithfully. Our trials can be kind of situational, Loneliness, or, or moving away from family, or family moving away from you. Our trials can be because we follow the Lord Jesus. Perhaps we're treated differently by friends, family, or coursemates, or flatmates, because of what you believe. In this room, some people will have suffered an awful lot. But many will have suffered quite little as well. And I think if there's one thing I imagine those who have suffered a lot would like to say to those who have suffered a little, it is don't wait until suffering comes along to think about it. 
to think about what the Bible tells us and how we can trust in our Heavenly Father. So let's have a look at these verses now and see what Peter says. This isn't the last word on suffering, but it is something. And it's important, isn't it? Because our experience tells us that there is nothing more painful than when suffering feels pointless. Peter calls it a little while. Do you see in verse 6? It doesn't often feel like a little while. It's possible for it to feel like eternity. But Peter says there is a way to let the light of our future glory shine into the darkness of our painful present. And that is by seeing not only does suffering have an end, it is a little while, it also has a purpose. Far from being pointless, God is working out, he is working in our waiting and he's working out glorious results. And he says, looking to their future end, the future end of suffering helps us to see what God is achieving. Helps us to see our trials in light of eternity. Have a look at verse 7. These, that's the various trials in verse 6, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. So we see verse 7, trials are about proving the genuineness of our faith. That is one thing that is going on. Trials, suffering, in part prove that our faith is real. And what does Peter say a proven genuine faith will bring in the future when Jesus returns? Praise, glory and honour. But how do trials do that? Well, one thing that Peter says is that they refine and strengthen our faith. He uses a picture of gold uh, to to show us that. It's a bit of a contrast. You see in the middle of verse 7, the idea is when gold is kind of dug out of the ground, it's often kind of mixed up with other minerals or or ores or, or, or metals. And so it's put in the furnace. And as it's heated and bashed about by metal workers, Gradually, the impurities within it are removed. It is refined. It is strengthened. And the end result, it is more precious. It is more valuable than what was put in in the first place. Peter's point is this, that faith is also put through the furnace of suffering. And like gold, the fire doesn't reduce it to ashes as we might expect. Suffering actually refines it and strengthens our faith. So the end result is purer and stronger than before. And at the end, praise, honour and glory go to Jesus. Peter's point is that if gold is worth something, putting through the fire, then how much more our faith, which is the most precious thing we could imagine. But how how does it actually work? How does it strengthen our faith? Well, because beating, being kind of beaten about, going through fire, that doesn't sound like a pleasant experience. I wonder if it's this, that unlike anything else, suffering and trials, they force us to turn away from self-confidence. They force us to cast our cares upon the Lord in a way that nothing else does. 
If I can change the metaphor uh, just for a moment. Um, the author Sam Albury says that faith is a little bit like a muscle. Uh, and in that way, it will only grow, it will only be refined and kind of toned, if you like, as it is worked out. It needs something to push against. So to grow a muscle, it actually requires discomfort. Um, some of you will know that if you go out for a run or you actually do any exercise. Um, I am less familiar um, with this. Um, but muscle requires discomfort to grow. And faith, in a similar way, needs to kind of push back on our trials for us to grow spiritually. Trials are an opportunity for us to cling to the promises of God more tightly. And what what does knowing that mean for us, though, that our present suffering has purpose? Because I know a number here will be in various degrees of pain. Obviously, that doesn't mean we go out and seek suffering and trials. And it doesn't mean that our reaction to them, when we feel sad, when we're in pain, it doesn't mean that that is wrong either. No, suffering itself is not a good thing. But what God can achieve through it is the most valuable thing on earth. So when you're lying awake at night because of trials, suffering, because of feeling you are in exile, remember that not a moment of your pain is wasted. And when your grief returns unexpectedly, no, it isn't pointless. No, this is a moment, once again, to lean on your Father's everlasting arms and experience his comfort and compassion afresh. Peter says our present suffering has purpose. And that means one day your faith, one day our faith, brothers and sisters, will result in praise, honour and glory. There's a singer called Wendell Kimball, and he's written a, a song about this. Here's just um, a, a few verses. Um, it's talking about the, the difference of perspective that we will one day have when we are in glory upon our suffering now. Where have I gone from? It's up here. Here we go. One day all our pains will be transfigured like the scars of Christ our Lord. We will see the weight of glory and our broken years restores. When we are in the new creation, we will see our wounded saviour, we'll behold him face to face and we'll hear our anguished stories. But I love this, they won't be told as anguished stories anymore. They will be sung as victory songs of grace. Every year we thought was wasted, every night that we cried, how long? All will be a passing moment in our saviour's victory song. That's an amazing comfort, isn't it? Our present suffering has purpose. One day, our songs of anguish will be victory songs of grace, bringing praise, honour and glory to Jesus. But one last thing, knowing that our present suffering has purpose brings more than just comfort. It can actually bring joy. Joy comes twice in this passage. Um, verse 6, that's kind of the joy of the hope that we have in verse 3 to 5. But also verse 8 to 9. Do you see, there is a joy that is growing in the middle of suffering. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. These guys have never seen Jesus in the flesh. But they believe in him. They love him. 
They have a joy that words cannot express. When did you last find yourself actually speechless? What could make them so joyful in such pain? The answer is verse 9. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Throughout this whole section, Peter's been focusing on the future aspect of salvation. The emphasis comes again and again. Jesus has not been revealed yet. It's in verse 5, verse 7, and then again in verse 13. They, They haven't seen him yet. But here he swaps to the present. They are receiving right now something of their future salvation. What is it? It is knowing Jesus better. We receive a part of that future purpose of our suffering in the present. Even though they don't see him yet with their eyes, they do see him by faith. As God works in our waiting and refines and strengthens our faith through our trials, in turn, we get a bit of a clearer view of Jesus, his goodness and his glory. They become clearer, and so Jesus becomes dearer. By faith, we enjoy what we will one day see by sight. And that home, that future glory, well, it's more than just a place, isn't it? Home and future glory are ultimately found in a person, the Lord Jesus himself. And that is something that we can taste even now. The uh, Puritan Richard Sibbs said this, Heaven is not heaven without Christ. It is better to be in any place with Christ than to be in heaven itself without him. All delicacies without Christ are but as a funeral banquet. Where the master of the feast is away, there is nothing but solemnness. What is all without Christ? I say the joys of heaven are not the joys of heaven without Christ. He is the very heaven of heaven. Right now, we can receive something of our future salvation in the present. Receiving the end result of our faith. The joy that is ours in Christ. Well, we are elect exiles. Life feels between suffering and glory. And as you go home tonight, maybe just reflect on what what are the pains of exile that, that are facing you this week? How might these cloud your view? And know that the Lord Jesus longs for you to know that that future glory is certain. He longs for you to be confident. And he longs for you to know that our present suffering has purpose. That you'd be comforted and that you would know the joy of knowing him better through it. Should we take a moment and then I'll close in prayer.